0: This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls today along with correspondent Megan Kamrick. It's easy to be fearful in the world today, but how much of our fear is based on things that are not actual threats? Today, producer Megan Kamrick talks with three guests. Sociologist and author Barry Glasner discusses how unfounded fears proliferate in our society and the impacts they have on our daily lives. And Reggie Jackson, senior columnist with the Milwaukee Independent and co-founder of Nurturing Diversity Partners, talks about how paranoia and fear by white society can be deadly for communities of color. But first, Janet Napolitano. She was Secretary of Homeland Security from 2009 to 2013. In her book, How Safe Are We? Homeland Security Since 9-11, She argues the United States is ignoring the most important threats to our security. She spoke with Megan Kamrick on New Mexico PBS TV.
1: How are we making mistakes in evaluating true threats?
2: I think the biggest mistake is to kind of focus only on the Southwest border, as if that is a danger to the safety and security of the American people. Look, I know the Southwest border very well. I I grew up here in New Mexico. Uh, I spent most of my adult life in Arizona as the U.S. Attorney, the Attorney General, then the Governor. You know, the border is a zone. It needs to be managed. It needs to be managed in accord with our law and with our values. But it is not itself a risk to the safety of the American people. If you watch the news now, you'd think the Department of Homeland Security was the Department of the Southwest Border, and that that was all that it was responsible for, when in fact um, it's responsible for many other functions, and I am concerned that uh, the overfocus on the southwest border is detracting from the department and the federal government's ability to deal with other more pressing challenges.
1: What should we be doing at the border that's different from what was happening now?
2: First of all, we need to address uh, the population that's coming to our border. So. When I was secretary, we had increased manpower, technology at the ports of entry and between the ports of entry. And we drove illegal immigration to 40 plus year lows. And it was still going down uh, when I left the department. Now, of course, we have this surge. And the surge is from basically three countries, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador. Uh, These are countries with very high homicide rates, highest in the world, They have uh, suffered from an infestation of gangs and gang violence. They don't have necessarily stable civil institutions. Uh, We should invest in those countries. We should provide training and equipment so they have adequate police forces. We should help them develop and have independent judicial systems. I think we need to focus on the migration from that part of the world not by uh, waiting until they actually appear at our border but trying to turn the faucet off at the source. That to me would actually increase our border security. Building a wall will not increase our border security. I used to say when I was the governor of Arizona show me a 10-foot wall I will show you an 11-foot ladder. What we should do is uh, we should make sure that the ports of entry are well-staffed and use the most current available technology. Then, for those who are seeking asylum, we need to have a way to process those cases in accord with our values and the rule of law.
1: What are the biggest threats that you see right now to Homeland Security?
2: I would say three. One of those three is definitely the rise of domestic terrorism and mass gun violence. It is high time to enact some gun safety measures at the federal level, universal background checks. I think we ought to reconsider the ban on assault weapons because the use of those assault weapons enlarges the loss of life and the numbers of people injured when these incidents occurred. But it takes some political will and courage by the members of our Congress and and by the President. But, you know, the people of the United States, I think, are beginning really to speak out, and they're going to need to speak out to push their congressional leaders to do the right thing. Two other risks, cybersecurity, huge, complicated, has evolved a great deal. You know, when I started as secretary, spent maybe 10% of my time on cybersecurity, By the time I left, it was a good 40% of my time. And now we've seen ransomware attacks, denial of service attacks, different kinds of hacking, the theft of personal information, And uh, we've seen an attack on our democracy itself Mm -hmm. uh, in the 2016 election. And with no confidence that that has been adequately dealt with or that um, that infiltration uh, of our electoral process by the Russians is not still continuing. I think uh, the intelligence community has concluded and warned us that it is continuing, but we have no national plan on how to deal with it. Third risk. I would identify are the risks associated with global warming. You know, why is that a Homeland Security? I was just
1: going to ask (laughs) that.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, when you step back, we are seeing a a perceptible increase in uh, migration from south to north across the planet and we're, we are having the creation of so-called climate refugees, um, people leaving their homelands because of extreme drought that's destroyed the agricultural economy, the rise in new types of plant disease that has destroyed the crops. Uh, the coffee crop in Guatemala has been basically destroyed by something called coffee rust, leaving all of those small farmers without any you know way to earn an income. And we have areas of the world where, due to global warming, as I mentioned, uh, the local economies have been affected and destroyed, leaving a population of primarily young men growing up hopeless, uh, helpless, and ripe for terrorist recruitment. And I think we can see some of the after effects of that, actually, in Syria and in Yemen. That, obviously, uh, ultimately affects homeland security. But another way is if you think of Homeland Security as protecting human life and property in the United States so that we are secure. The increase in extreme weather events related to global warming is really quite astounding. Uh, Landfall hurricanes, tornadoes, drought in the western United States that's led to massive wildfire with with loss of life and and property. We had the Camp Fire in California last year, Mm -hmm. basically took out an entire town, 85 dead, and hundreds of others left homeless or injured by by the fire.
1: What should we be doing from a Homeland Security standpoint to address these impacts of global warming?
2: uh, One is we should, as a country, do our part to reduce the amount of carbon that's being emitted into the atmosphere. I think we should rejoin the Paris Accords. Uh, That would be uh, a first step. A second step is to focus on adaptation to the climate change that already has occurred or that we know is going to occur within the near future. Rising sea levels affect where we rebuild communities, where we site things like airport runways. Having a real discussion and a plan with how we deal with that is essential. The materials we use in building homes and buildings and bridges, et cetera, all have to be built with an eye toward climate change.
1: You write about real security versus security theater. What do you mean by that? Security
2: theater is when you do things that make you look tough but that have no perceptible outcome in terms of improvement in our safety and security. Real security involves manpower, it involves technology. It should be evidence-based and data-driven and uh, should have as its goal the increase in the safety of the American people.
0: That's former Homeland Security Secretary Janet Napolitano. Her book is How Safe Are We? Homeland Security Since 9-11, We'll hear more from her later on in our program. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with Megan Kamrick. You can find all our episodes dating back to 2002 online at peacetalksradio.com. We continue now with Barry Glasner, a sociologist and the author of the book Culture of Fear Why Americans Are Afraid of the Wrong Things. He also hosts the podcast Fear Not with comedian Alonzo Bolden. Glastner says Americans are actually living in one of the safest periods in human history, yet unfounded fears continue to abound.
3: I think that there have been fears around for a long time, but right now what's going on is that it's very profitable for a lot of different organizations and individuals to be promoting fears and scares. As a result of that, partly, and in, in response to that, partly, anxiety is the number one Uh, psychological disorder in the U.S. at this point.
1: Can you give us some examples of that?
3: Sure. Probably the biggest perpetrator is local TV news. Even though crime rates are down in most of the nation, there are many places at near record lows, anybody who watches local TV news very much is going to think that their communities are crime-ridden. Politicians routinely run on fear of crime and that if you don't vote for them— uh, you're going to be even greater danger than you are now. A lot of things are sold by way of fear. But
1: there's also a lot of money to be made.
3: Oh, yeah, there's a lot of money to be made uh, from for profit organizations and not for profit organizations. Nonprofit organizations are very prone to fear mongering for their fundraising. You know, they take the form of this horrible thing is going on, the worst thing you could imagine. It's getting worse and so you should send us money. What I do is when I receive a fear campaign solicitation from an organization that I do support, I respond to them. Uh, I give them feedback. I mean, I tell them I'm not going to contribute even though I support your organization because you engage in this kind of activity. You can respond to fear-mongering media too. Local TV news stations don't often hear enough from people saying, you know, I don't want my skier of the evening. I want to know what's really going on in my community.
1: The idea of fear is not a new concept. You quote anthropologist Mary Douglas, who writes that dangers get selected for special emphasis either because they offend the basic moral principles of the society or because they enable criticism of disliked groups and institutions.
3: When people use fears about other groups... They're basically making moral judgments implicitly, usually, rather than explicitly, which makes it seem kind of more legit or kosher, right? What's different now is that it's all around us, you know, on cable TV news, in politicians' campaigns, all over the internet, there are fear campaigns. In the new edition of the Culture of Fear, I say it's updated for the Trump era, and I make the point, that Trump is, as I call him, the fearmonger-in-chief, but he's hardly the first. Initially, I wrote this book in response to uh, something that was going on uh, way back in the 1990s that was really the impetus for my research, and that was fearmongering about teenage moms. And it was Bill Clinton who called them America's most serious social problem, That's a direct quote from Bill Clinton in his 1995 State of the Union address. And it had a big effect, obviously, on pregnant teenagers who were hardly America's biggest social problem in reality. But this resulted in lots of outcomes uh, and lots of money being spent. The federal welfare law that was passed the next year in 96 was $250 million for states to use... Uh, to persuade young people to practice uh, premarital abstinence. And Clinton did a lot of fear-mongering about uh, adolescent males, too, talking about them as super predators and so forth. You know, this this had a big effect in terms of uh, how young people were treated and in terms of the costs associated with, quote-unquote, dealing with the problem.
1: That's a great example of What happens when we make policies based on fear? You also spend a lot of time talking about dangers to children, which I thought was fascinating because we've actually learned a lot about how pedophiles and sexual predators groom their victims by ingratiating themselves into their lives. But we still see so much focus on stranger danger or the fears of random kidnappings or what are the real stats that we should be worried about?
3: stereotypical kidnappings each year in the U.S. average around 110. Each one of those, of course, is tragic, but we got to look at the reality behind that. The millions and millions of children in America, there are 110 of these, and it's like the last thing that a parent should worry about. What happens is a tragic incident occurs, and I never would minimize how tragic these are, Absolutely. There's no question about it. And that then is covered in the news media and online often, you know, and in social media in ways that then make it seem like this this is happening on some large scale basis when it just isn't. You know, we can try to prevent that um, very rare incident. Maybe we should. You know, I'm not going to judge that. But it, it there certainly are two big downsides, at least. It's not great for children to be living in this environment where they're told to not trust anybody or anything. And secondly, uh, what we do about to try to combat these very rare incidents is very expensive, typically, at a time when, uh, you know, we're not spending a whole lot of money on needs that affect many, many more children And much more often, you know, from crumbling schools to homelessness to child uh, hunger, where that money would make a very big impact if it were spent well.
1: So, Barry Glassner, you talk about pseudo-dangers. Those represent opportunities to avoid problems we don't want to confront.
3: When we talk about low-probability dangers, Sometimes what we're doing is avoiding ones that we either feel we can't confront emotionally or as a society, or that we just don't think we know what to do about. A great example that comes up, unfortunately, very often is when there's been a mass shooting. Then there's a lot of talk about things like video games and... Uh, movies. The research is very clear. If they have any impact, it's very small when what we should be talking about is unambiguous. It's guns and what we do about it. Another popular one, of course, uh, is mental illness. And in fact, when you look at studies, uh, what you find is that people with diagnosable mental illness commit about 5% of shootings. But look, we feel like we're not going to get anywhere um, with dealing with the gun issue, so let's pay attention to these others. Or, you know, if you're a politician uh, who is beholden to certain, you know, interests who don't want to deal with the gun issue, then it's a great idea to do fear-mongering about mental illness and video games and all that sort of thing.
0: That's Barry Glassner, whose podcast is called Fear Not. He also wrote the book Culture of Fear – why Americans are afraid of the wrong things. We'll have links to both on our website, peacetalksradio.com, our October 2019 episode. We'll talk with him more later in the program too. And coming up shortly, how unfounded fears by whites can be disastrous for communities of color. That and more when Peace Talks Radio continues in just a minute. Listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls along with Megan Kamrick today. Visit us online at peacetalksradio.com for details on this episode and all our episodes dating back to 2002. That's at peacetalksradio.com. We continue our show about facing our fears today with Reggie Jackson. Now, this Reggie Jackson is a senior columnist with the Milwaukee Independent. He's also co-owner of an outfit called Nurturing Diversity Partners. Jackson points out that the outcomes of paranoia and irrational fears fall heavily on communities of color when white people call police. He wrote a column recently about these kinds of incidents. In recent years, Starbucks employees in Philadelphia called police on two black men waiting for a colleague, a woman visiting Colorado State University called Campus Security when two Native American students joined her tour group, and a white student called when she saw a black graduate student asleep in their dorm room's common room at Yale University. Those are just a few examples of many such instances, and Jackson says these actions often have serious consequences.
4: Well, you know, I think it creates a great deal of fear in people, I think particularly for for African-American men. Uh, A good example of that here in Milwaukee was uh, Dontre Hamilton. Uh, He was at a public park here in downtown Milwaukee, Red Arrow Park, sleeping on a park bench. And there's a Starbucks in that park as well. Uh, The employees of Starbucks called the police department. Uh, the first officers who arrived on the scene talked to the employees, went out and talked to Dontre Hamilton, went back in and told the employees, "You yeah, listen, it's a public park, he's taking a nap, he's not doing anything wrong, uh, he's not breaking the law, and, and they left. So the Starbucks employees once again called the police again. They called 911 for the second time. The same officers came back, told them, like, look, why are you wasting our time? We told you he's not breaking a law, he's within his rights to sleep in the park, and those officers left. Unfortunately, another officer heard uh, the second call. He arrived on the scene and had an altercation, and the officer shot Dontre Hamilton 14 times and killed him. It's, It's this idea that only certain people are allowed to occupy specific spaces, and if you're not one of those people, then we can call the police and have you removed. In many instances when these things happen, the police have handled them very well, but there have been instances where the police don't necessarily handle these things well. I think they're putting the police in a very bad place, and I, th- I think that it increases the angst between you know Native American, African American, Latino American community and the police department. It's really adding fuel to fire unnecessarily. I've advocated that we do this, that we advocate for those people to face some type of charges for wasting the police officers' time, for wasting those resources. Part of the responsibility lies in the people who answer these calls as well.
1: Sometimes these encounters escalate and innocent people die, as you said, when people call the police. Sometimes they don't and no one's arrested, but they may be interrogated by the police What are the impacts on people when institutional power is called in against them?
4: Well, you know, I think it creates a great deal of fear in people. Uh, I think particularly for for African-American men, there's a level of fear that we have anytime we have encounters with the police because we know that for many, many years, uh, those encounters have ended with us, you know, whether we're armed or or unarmed, uh, with us dying. And even if it ends well... The embarrassment that comes with it, I I tell people a lot here in Milwaukee, obviously we have really horrible winters, and yet uh, for years I remember seeing the police pulling over uh, a car with young African-American men in it and making them get out of the car in the middle of February when it's, you know, 10 degrees outside or five below zero and making these young men sit on a snowbank as they were searching their cars. And it's not just embarrassing, but what it does is it creates a great deal of distrust of the police. And it makes it really, really hard for the community to trust the police. But it also makes it really difficult for the police to do their jobs properly.
1: Does this feel like a resurgence of a pattern or does it feel like just it's been going on all the time?
4: It's simply business as usual. The only thing that's different is that we're aware of it because of all of the people who have cell phones and social media. These things spread like wildfire when they happen now, but I've shared with people on many occasions. I do a a presentation I call How We Got Here, looking at the history of American history and how we've had what I refer to as an aversion to diversity. And, And part of what I share in that is how we've treated different marginalized communities and we created a sense of fear of these communities to justify treating them horribly. For instance, you know, we referred to Native American groups as savages, which justified us killing them in large numbers. Uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was this great level of fear around the country of, you know, Asians infiltrating America. So they, there was this thing called the Yellow Peril. We banned Chinese citizens from coming to the United States in a law called the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. We signed an agreement with the Japanese government that they would be uh, only a limited number of Japanese coming to the country. And then in the period right after World War One, there was a, a great deal of anti-immigrant uh, fear in the country. And so we passed some of the strictest immigration laws. In 1921, we put a quota system in place. And then in 1924, we extended this quota to basically keep people from Southern and Eastern Europe primarily out of the country because there was a fear of these people somehow— creating a stain on America. You know, the eugenics movement was very strong, and they said that this group of people are not the type of people that we want. So fear is a common theme in American history to justify treating people very poorly.
1: How do these instances where, you know, people are calling because they feel afraid, um, how do they repeat a pattern that has existed for centuries in our country around public
4: spaces? There's been um, a lack of access to certain spaces by different groups of people. You know, when we talk about during the period of 246 years that Africans were enslaved in this country, there were very strict laws uh, dictating where they could be, how long they could be in different spaces, how many could be in a group together. So these laws not only applied to the enslaved population, but it applied to the free black population as well. Uh, laws that didn't allow us to have free access to any space that we wanted to occupy. Uh, And even when we think about Jim Crow laws, Jim Crow, it was actually laws that that basically dictated discrimination against uh, black people uh, in particular. And so, you know, we weren't allowed to use the same restrooms, uh, the same bathrooms. We weren't allowed to go through the front door of different restaurants and things of that nature. Even in my hometown, I tell people, my hometown, a little town in Mississippi, it still was a segregated hospital the day I was born. My mother actually had to go around the back door of the hospital through the coloreds only entrance of the hospital. And so these things have been so prevalent for such a long time. That what it's done, it's not just created, you know, segregated spaces and and people's inability to access spaces, but what it's done for white people in particular is given them unfettered access to any space in America that they chose to have as a space they could occupy and denying access to other groups. That's what segregation was about. It wasn't about keeping people separate. It was about keeping people uh, in a position where they had the authority to dictate whether or not someone who they didn't want to be in that space, could be in that space. And so when we think about segregated schools, we think about all of these things that we've done over the course of time, even when it goes back to like Native American history, uh, we passed a law, Congress uh, passed a law called the Indian Removal Act, which basically dictated that these Native Americans in Georgia and and northern Florida and in Virginia and places of that nature uh, you know, Alabama, Mississippi, that they could no longer occupy those spaces. And we forced them to walk all the way to Oklahoma to a so-called reservation there. And many of them died on the way there. This has been kind of part and parcel of how we've dictated um, who could and could not occupy spaces. And I think today the reason that is so prevalent is because those mindsets haven't changed. Just because we changed laws have we really changed people's hearts and minds.
0: That's Reggie Jackson, a senior columnist with the Milwaukee Independent and co-founder of Nurturing Diversity Partners. As with our other guests, you can hear Megan's complete interview with him on our website, peacetalksradio.com. Look for the October 2019 episode. We'll come back to Reggie a little bit later in our program. And also we'll hear more from Barry Glassner, author of Culture of Fear, Why Americans Are Afraid of the Wrong Things. And former Homeland Security Secretary Janet Napolitano is next again when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break. I'm Paul Ingalls, today with Megan Kamrick, and this is Peace Talks Radio, the series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, and most of our episodes are at peacetalksradio.com. Today, Megan is exploring how we can parse out real threats from fears that aren't based in reality with our three guests. And we return to former Homeland Security Secretary Janet Napolitano, who's author of the book How Safe Are We?, Homeland Security since 9-11.
1: The idea of how we're viewed around the world, which some people thought about after 9-11, why is that an important part of Homeland Security
2: and keeping us safe? That is part of Homeland Security because our ability to work with other nations, Um, just for example, on intelligence sharing. So I'll give you an example. Um, There was a plot to put explosives in printer toner cartridges that were going to be loaded into the cargo holes of passenger planes. And we learned about the plot because we had active intelligence sharing uh, with the Brits. And so we were able to intervene, stop it, take it down, and then change some of our security protocols so that it couldn't be repeated. You know, if America retreats from the world and it's uh, kind of America alone, you lose that kind of capability, and that makes us less safe.
1: We are recording this uh, just shortly after the mass shooting in El Paso, which was apparently driven by, uh, perpetrated by someone who had white supremacist views. Should we consider white supremacist groups terrorist organizations?
2: I think we should. You know, one of the gaps in the federal criminal law is that there's no specific criminal violation for domestic terrorism. So prosecutors have to characterize it as a hate crime, hmm. or if there was somebody in law enforcement who was injured or killed, they can uh, charge it that way. But when, for example, the US attorney announces they're going to address this as a domestic terrorism case. Mm -hmm. They can from an investigative perspective, but not from an actual charging decision perspective. So we need to change the law to address that? I think so. I also think we need to recognize that in terms of terrorist incidents that have caused loss of life, leaving aside the the terrible loss of life on 9-11. But but since then, there's been more actual loss of life attributable to domestic terrorists than those influenced by foreign Islamist organizations.
1: There seems to be a disconnect between the true threat that these self-radicalized people present and the resources that are available to law enforcement to confront that threat. What should we change?
2: Well you know one thing that we should do is we should make domestic terrorism an actual federal crime. There's no domestic terrorism statute. And then I think our primary investigative bodies, uh, the FBI, parts of the DHS, et cetera, ought to be reevaluating the risk associated with these um, self-radicalized white nationalist individuals, they're primarily young men, and then I think we all almost need to look at this at, uh, from a public health perspective and because we really don't understand what's going on in someone's brain that mm-hmm. causes them to be radicalized via social media, um, via the internet, to the point where they go out and purchase a combat-ready weapon and take it to, you know, Walmart in, in El Paso or a synagogue or a school, etc. So, we need better predictive behaviors uh, for law enforcement to be able to to, uh, watch out for so that there could be a a greater chance of early intervention.
1: Well, there's not even, I mean, local law enforcement doesn't even have a lot of the intelligence they would need. There's a long piece in the New York Times when there was going to be some kind of white supremacist rally in Florida, and the local sheriff, who. he could get no intelligence about who are these people, who's coming, um, because it hasn't been gathered, apparently. <laughs> well, it,
2: it may have been gathered, but it wasn't being shared. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we have this, uh, we, you know, we have two systems in the United States, federal and then state or, and local. And most intelligence gathering is done at the federal level. Um, the sharing of that with all of the police chiefs and sheriffs, et cetera, around the country. That is a challenge. It's something that we tried to improve upon when I was at DHS, but it is something that definitely needs more work done.
1: One of the things we often ask guests on the show is how can people or our listeners contribute to promoting a culture of peace and safety in conditions that seem
2: beyond their control? everybody has a role to play and you know we're a nation of problem solvers and uh, we've taken on big challenges before we should take this one on and and by the way just being an active participant in our democracy matters uh, not just voting but between elections let your voice be heard communicate with uh, your congress people with your senators you know i used to be an elected official i know that when you hear from a lot of people about an issue. You also know that you need to pay attention to it and perhaps take some action.
1: What about realistic action steps for Americans just getting along day to day?
2: You know, I think we need to listen more and we need to avoid the temptation to only read or watch news that we agree with. We need to reach out and listen to the other side and and try to think through what's, really going on and you know why are they so angry or why are we so angry and uh, recognize that in a representative democracy like ours that our elected officials are entrusted by us to lead the country and also entrusted by us to work together and this is where uh, obviously washington dc is failing now
1: janet napolitano in your book how safe are we homeland security since 9 11 you also write politics doesn't have to be a blood sport what was your experience and your vision of public service that you want to impart
2: to people in my book i wanted to impart uh, that there are lots and lots, thousands of people in the United States that are in public service. They're motivated by um, contributing, you know, to the public good. They have a very noble kind of mission idea. And they're doing the, the work of government often unseen, but um, it is what helps keep us as safe as we can be. And, and they also generate ideas for things that we can do and do better. I've spent basically my whole career in one public service role or another, and it's been a wonderful set of experiences, difficult to be sure, challenges indeed. You don't make everybody happy, so you uh, also have to develop, uh, I call it, develop your calluses. Uh, You've got to develop a thick skin. But the people that I worked with, both in state government in Arizona and at the federal level, so many of them were so impressive.
1: You seem to be making a call in your book for people to join you in public service. What do you want people to do?
2: Well, right now, I want our young people to consider going into public service. Public service can, can be a number of things. It can be the federal government, it can be state, it can be city. It can be a nonprofit organization, but something that helps contribute to the common good. Uh, And uh, one of the things I did, for example, was we funded public service law fellowships at our law schools that help support law students between their second and third year of law school if they go and intern at a public service organization. And then if they actually join one once they graduate from law school, it helps provide additional funding to kind of make up for the salary disparity Uh, Which is one of the sacrifices one makes when when one is in public service.
1: So they can pay off those loans. Exactly. (laughs) So you would like more people to think about public service. How do you see that making a more peaceful and therefore more secure society?
2: Well, I think it makes for a better society, you know, when your government is staffed and uh, serviced by people of real talent that uh, in the end, in, improves not only safety and security, but just the plain old delivery of services and the things that we expect government to provide.
0: That's former Homeland Security Secretary Janet Napolitano. Her book is called How Safe Are We? Homeland Security Since 9-11. And she spoke with producer Megan Kamrick, who interviewed her on New Mexico PBS television. And her complete interview is at our website, peacetalksradio.com, Look for the October 2019 episode. And now we turn back to one of our other guests, sociologist Barry Glassner, who's author of the book Culture of Fear, Why Americans Are Afraid of the Wrong Things. And he also hosts a podcast with comedian Alonzo Bolden called
3: Fear Not.
1: So Barry Glassner, what are you afraid of right now? What should we be afraid of?
3: This is going to sound <laughs> too basic or not wholly honest, but it really, really is. I'm afraid of drunk drivers. I'm very pleased that the rates are lower than they have been, which, by the way, is attributable in large part to Mothers Against Drunk Driving. But I know the numbers, right? I know that I'm much more likely to have uh, something happen to me uh, you know, to be injured or even killed from a drunk driver than from all sorts of other things. In terms of a more global uh, fear I have, I do have one. And that relates to the high inequality rates in our society and that they have been increasing so very, very rapidly and are are at really extreme levels now. And the reason I do uh, worry about that is because I know the research and very high levels of of inequality – have multiple effects throughout society. They are very much correlated with uh, more crime, less happiness generally in the society, poor mental and physical health. They impact uh, race relations and intergroup relations. It has a big effect on um, uh, civic and political participation. So, you know, it's serious business. And it does concern me because at this point, It's really way out of control.
1: About gun violence, I wanted to return to that for a minute because I, like many Americans in our workplace, have to do a training every year about active shooters. And I go back and forth on that because, okay, especially being in journalism, not a bad idea to know what to do if there's an active shooter in your building. And yet, is it wise to engage in this kind of thing or is it just more fear-mongering?
3: Active shooter drills make a lot of sense in some settings where you know, people really need to know what to do if it happens. At the same time, it's incredibly unlikely that this is going to happen to you. Whereas, being uh, a victim directly or indirectly, meaning a family member or close friend, of gun violence uh, is not unlikely, unfortunately, in this country at this point. And so being concerned about gun violence and how to deal with it uh, is absolutely legitimate and is something that I think everybody should be concerned about. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means different things in different uh, households and, and workplaces. But, for example, if you're a gun owner and you have children, lock the guns away effectively. To, you know, it's just just for a start. That would be a good idea. Uh, and there are many other things you can do around that. Active shooter drills for adults in certain situations like the one you're in are certainly reasonable. How reasonable they are for children in schools is an open question. And I know you can know, hear from people about this. One thing's for sure, it scares the children at what age it stops scaring them and educates them and they feel a little safer is a reasonable question. For small children, certainly it's just scary and how effective it is is an open question. Making children more afraid in a world where they're already very fear-ridden and hear these things all the time uh, is, is not constructive for them and it's not constructive uh, for the society. And it avoids dealing with the more common forms of violence, including gun violence. One thing I like to urge is, especially in school situations, but also in workplace situations, if you're going to be discussing gun violence and trying to protect people, uh, don't focus primarily or solely on mass shootings because the probability there is pretty low. Focus on suicide prevention, first off, probability is much higher there, and focus on gun safety, which is where a lot of these uh, negative outcomes come about.
1: You know, fear is so powerful. How do we deconstruct our own fears and decide if they're real or not? And how do we help others who might hold a fear that is not based in fact?
3: What I recommend is to ask the person or ask yourself, do you really want to hold on to this fear? <laughs> and most people are going to say no and, you know, ask it again. Make sure. you sure you don't. And then if they get to the point where they understand, yeah, I think I really would like to get let go of this, then simply talk about where you can get what you need to do that, which is almost always information. Sometimes not. Sometimes, you know, you need something to make your, your situation more secure, right? Like uh, we talked earlier about uh, the, the gun issue, uh, like a gun safe you might need to buy, right? But typically it's information. And so the way to help oneself and friends and family is to get educated about where you can get that information that will be true, right, and reassuring. And uh, go to those sources when you have fear mongering around you an entertaining way is to listen to our podcast it's hilarious alonzo's funny about all these things all the time and i'm debunking all kinds of serious and funny scares on fear not the reason that uh, i've taken this new approach and i'm doing this podcast is because i for, for years i've been trying to tell people you know some of these are really hilarious and you need to learn how to laugh at them and people would look at me and like they don't seem very funny to me So, you know, I'm collaborating with somebody uh, who is a professional comedian and finds these laughable things really funny, which they are, and knows how to make them funny for other people.
1: Yeah, you guys explore all kinds of things from is the Grand Canyon killing people to Marie Kondo to something called chicken washing anyway. And uh, why is humor an effective way to undercut some of those powerful fears? that sort of get in your snake
3: brain. They definitely are, right? You know, I mean, I give the facts and he gives the funnies, is the way we put it, right? And we intentionally talk about all kinds of different topics, including really silly ones, but that people are really, are actually really afraid of. I mean, you know, we talked about Kondo and and her show and, and her book and all that, because, you know, there are quite a few people who are, are have been made quite concerned that if if they have a lot of clutter around their place, this is a scary thing. This is a dangerous thing.
1: Well, I did notice on your podcast, you hold a place each week for a segment you call Fear Florida. Why?
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, we have a segment called Fear Florida. Uh, this originated, I don't know if, if you remember, the Florida man searches. You just put your birth year and Florida man and you'll get some weird story and we what we found is that often you'll get a really scary story of something weird and scary that's happened in Florida in fact this is the hardest decision the producers have to make each week is which fear Florida story to go with because there's so many crazy weird scary things um, that happened down there. But we love Florida. I always emphasize that. We love you in Florida. But you do have a lot of weird, scary stuff that happens down there for some reason. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's too much good weather and humidity. I just, I just don't know.
0: You can hear Megan's complete interview with author and podcast host Barry Glassner at peacetalksradio.com in our October 2019 episode. We'll end our program today with a return to Reggie Jackson, who's a senior columnist with the Milwaukee Independent and co-founder of Nurturing Diversity Partners, who continues our discussion about the impact of unfounded fears on communities of color.
1: You write that America has lived in a state of paranoia for far too long, and the nation's white population has been educated to believe that enemies lurk around every corner, and we've consistently created people in groups to fear. Why do you think the white population of America has been consistently socialized this way? You
4: know, there was always a fear of Native Americans attacking, you know, colonists in in the early days of America. There was always a fear of revolts by the enslaved Africans. Uh, So that fear has been there, and it's justified because... Well, guess what? When you treat people a particular way, you have to look over your shoulder to make sure that those people are not going to respond in the way that you've treated them, that you're not going to get back what you've given to them. And so what happens is those mindsets, that feeling, that belief is still very prevalent in America because we know that despite the fact that legalized slavery ended uh, in 1865 with the passage of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, that we didn't all of a sudden start treating Uh, these formerly enslaved African people well. We continue to mistreat them. We continue to treat them horribly. We continue to beat them. We continue to murder them. You know, 5,000 documented cases of lynchings. A majority of those victims were blacks, men, women, and children. Uh, We continue to marginalize Native Americans. You know, we fought wars with them until they literally couldn't fight anymore all the way through the late 1800s. So we've, we've created an atmosphere where we have treated people in a way that is, the common sense would teach us that at some point those people are going to look for retribution in some way, shape, or form. And so there's this fear that's there. And even though when you look back, uh, for the most part, uh, there hasn't been retribution by these groups.
1: Yeah, white guilt is a powerful motivator. People might think, well, hey, I'm I didn't own slaves. I'm not a racist. Why do I have to work on these issues? But I was reading something by uh, psychologist Beverly Daniel Tatum. She said, we may not have polluted the air, but we all have a responsibility to clean it up.
4: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it's very easy for for Americans to say that they weren't part of these systems. You know, oh, my family never owned any any slaves. But I tell people all the time, if you understand the way slavery worked in this country, that you didn't have to be a slaveholder to be a person who benefited from the system of enslavement. Uh, What's really important, you know, people have to get this out of their mind, Megan, that it's about individual acts of bigotry. Obviously, those things are very important. But what's more important, the institutions need to change. And the structural nature of racism is what people have a very hard time wrapping their minds around. They think that if we just are able to create a society where people, you know, aren't bigots, uh, then everything will change. No, it, it doesn't work that way. We have to change the practices and policies within institutions to create a more equitable society, one where your race will not be a predictor of the outcome of your life. And that's the case uh, here in Milwaukee and many other places. And a just and fair society is one where that won't be the case anymore.
1: How does implicit bias play a role in these encounters where people see someone like, oh, they don't belong in the space, I'm calling the police, and how can we overcome that?
4: My company, Nurture Diversity Partners, we do a lot of training around Metro Milwaukee and other places. And we talk quite a bit about uh, implicit or unconscious bias. So we teach people the history of where these negative ideas come from. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to fight something when you don't know it exists within you, right? So what we teach people is that there are ways that we can recognize the biases by recognizing our habits. Recognize the habits that come about as a result of the biases we have. For instance, here's, here's a classic example. Uh, you're a white woman. You're on an elevator. Uh, A black male gets on the elevator with you and you grab your purse thinking that somehow this man may try to snatch your purse. You may not be aware that you're biased uh, about this black man and, you know, being afraid of him. But you can certainly recognize that if you are grabbing your purse every time a black man gets on the elevator, you can certainly change that behavior. So really unconscious or implicit bias Uh, the resolution to it is to begin to look at the habits that we developed based on those biases and ask ourselves, why do we do these things, and then do things differently moving forward. We were uh, part of a small group of volunteers who were working to continue to do uh, the work that the founder of America's Black Holocaust Museum, Dr. James Cameron, started. His work was designed to educate Americans about, you know, this part of history that they didn't learn and to help us, you know, build a society where we could begin to work on racial repair and reconciliation. And what we try to do uh, primarily is to re-educate people about American history. Our favorite tool and, and most prominent tool we have available to us is historical understanding, historical knowledge, to contextualize kind of how we've gotten to where we are, because we can't fix problems if we don't know, you know, the genesis of those problems. So there's a lot of spaces that we're working in, really trying to raise people's awareness of this history and also Give them the tools to be able to interact and have conversations across cultures and across differences. Uh, We use a facilitated dialogue method we call the Caring Circle, which teaches people to actively listen, uh, which is something that we don't do enough in these conversations. But we want people to have um, conversations that are productive conversations. And the only way to have productive conversations about race and racism and some of these other issues related to them is to know the history first. Uh, What we found uh, when we first started the business, everyone told Fran and I the same thing, that you guys are not going to be successful. You can't make a business talking about this stuff uh, in those communities because white people are not going to come out to hear you talk. They don't want to talk about race and racism. Uh, You know, they told us that we were crazy, that we'd be run out of town, that we need bodyguards. We heard all kinds of negative critiques when we decided to start the business two years ago, but it's been the exact opposite we've been welcomed with open arms, every community that we've gone to. So we realized that despite the fact that we uh, think we're such a divided nation along these lines now, that we we found uh, during our work, uh, not only here in Wisconsin, but also, you know, traveling to Texas and doing work there and, and doing conferences in Chicago and Detroit and Newark, New Jersey, and Charleston, South Carolina, um, as well as uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, that there are a lot of people that are engaged in these conversations that really want to see change happen. We think that America is in better shape than we tend to think it is because I I, I think that for the most part, the people who are most against this type of work, uh, they are the loudest voice in the room. And because they have the loudest voice in the room, it appears that there's many more of them than there is.
1: What are some suggestions? Like just before you pick up that call, phone and call nine one one, which a lot of white people feel a privilege to do, what some
4: some mental exercises to do before you do that? It's like they say, uh, if you're going to post something on social media or text something to somebody, think about it before you hit send. And it's the same thing with this. If you're in a space and and you have this, you know, this thought in your mind that this person uh, doesn't belong here. Ask yourself, what is it about this person that makes you think they don't belong? And, and even more importantly than that, what is it about this person that's creating an unsafe place in that space? Why is it that you think that this person is someone that you should fear because they're different? You know, one of the things that all of us have to be cognizant of is is obviously, like I said, our biases, but to think about what our biases make us do. And if we are in a space where we are, you know, we dislike someone because of their race or ethnicity or sexual orientation or whatever, and we feel that we can remove that person from the space, We should think about how absolutely entitled we must be to think that we can make that judgment of a person.
0: That was Reggie Jackson, senior columnist with the Milwaukee Independent, also co-founder of Nurturing Diversity Partners. You can hear Megan Kamrick's complete interviews with all of our guests on the October 2019 page at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can go to hear all the programs in our series dating back to 2002. You can see photos, read and share transcripts. Sign up for our podcast, order CDs, and make a donation to keep this program going into the future, all at peacetalksradio.com. Support comes from listeners like you, and like Betsy Christensen, who donated to honor her late parents, John and Audrey. Also, chiropractor Ruben Ramirez with the Spinal Health and Movement Center in Albuquerque's Knob Hill neighborhood, the Albuquerque Community Foundation Tides Fund, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Daves Moses is our executive director, Allie Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Megan Kamrick, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks so much for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.